It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is Sebastian St. Louis, CEO and co-founder of Hexo, a leading Canadian-based company in the recreational cannabis sector. Author of The Billion Dollar Startup, Sebastian co-founded Hexo with one goal in mind, to create a world-class company based on the highest standards of product quality and safety. Since 2013, he has secured more than $650 million in financing, and his leadership has been instrumental in navigating the company through regulatory, financing, and startup challenges, en route to becoming the only significant licensed cannabis producer in Quebec and one of the largest in Canada. Sebastian holds an MBA in finance from the University of Quebec on Montreal and completed his Bachelor of Arts in Economics from the University of Ottawa in 18 months. Sebastian St. Louis, welcome into the corner office. Thank you, Brent. Thanks for having me. Oh, great to have you here. And we spoke a couple of weeks ago. Um, I'm at the uh, kind of the opposite end of North America out on the West Coast in California. It's it's nice and sunny here today. I won't ask you what it's like up there, but I think you're through the worst of the storm. Is the summer, has the spring been coming already? Well, we still have a couple feet of snow, Brent. <laughs> oh, goodness. All right. Well, we won't go deeper into that. But more importantly, how are you doing? Uh, these have been interesting pandemic times, and we've certainly had, you know, uh, a couple of blows through this uh section of, of, of our life has, uh, you know, has been evident with a lot of the healthcare issues. What's it like in your community? More importantly, how's your family and how's your company done through this period? I've been incredibly fortunate during the pandemic. Uh, one, uh, we are designated as essential workers being producers of uh, cannabis. Right. And right. so we still go to work as the first thing. The right. second thing uh, is that uh, we have very stringent uh, quality and security uh, processes mm. and safety processes. And we've doubled down on those processes during the pandemic. So it's right. full PPE, face masks. Uh, and so there's still some uh, possible interaction. Office for, workers, for absolutely sites, everybody. Everything. Absolutely yeah, everybody. Yeah, our office yeah. workers are working from home. Uh, the right. production sites in greenhouse and at the manufacturing plant are uh, are there, but in full full head-to-toe PPE. I make it out to, uh, to the production sites uh, at, at a minimum or once a month at each different site. Uh, and so that, that kind of changes the uh, the air and allows you to, sure. to get away. And, uh, Literally two, and figuratively. Two, yeah, and, and my, my kids aren't in school yet. So uh, the two right. young kids and, and very yeah. fortunate they're healthy and uh, happy. So life, yeah. life is uh, as good as it can be. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Well, let's start with your early years. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what your early family life was like. Well, I grew in a small uh, community called Blackburn Hamlet, uh, which Ooh. is in the east end of Ottawa. 
Right. I grew up, uh, both my parents were teachers and uh, grew up out of, had a very, uh, very nice childhood, uh, was, uh, you know, good friends, good schools. Bi and, bilingual uh, home, mom and dad, French. American, francophone. French, yeah, francophone. So was, my father actually fought for French language rights in Ontario wow. uh, back uh, many years ago. So uh, yeah. there, was a, there was a question of whether French schools would be uh, put into legislation in Ontario uh, in, the, uh, in the 70s. And my wow. father led that battle and uh, secured French language schools uh, in Ontario uh, from, uh, from his home. They were from Northern Ontario. Was he in education or what was his... Uh... Um, occupational background. He started with the federal government and finished his career in education. And he was uh, he was a, a poet in his spare time <laughs> and a photographer. Awesome. And mom, did she work from the home or also have a career? Mom's been a teacher her whole life. Yeah, uh, yeah. When she was started at 19 years old and had a, a wonderful career, phenomenal uh, pedagogue and uh, very well regarded. Uh, she still still meets uh, every once in a while some uh, old students, so she made a mark. <laughs> that's that's very satisfying, I'm sure. Brothers and sisters, I'm an only child. Only child, got it. So if you think about some of the times growing up, and I'm sure education was a big part of it, but what were some of the early memories that you had about, you know, kind of mom and dad's, you know, approach to parenting and, and work? Well, I have to thank uh, my father for be putting a lot of emphasis on critical thinking, thinking mm. for myself. Uh, we, uh, we grew up, uh, I grew up playing chess with my father uh, uh -huh. from time to time and uh, was, uh, was always encouraged to pursue uh, anything that interested me. So I had a lot yeah. of latitude and uh, support there. Awesome. Other people that were influences, any coaches or teachers that you remember or, or that perhaps you go back to as people go back to your mom uh, from those early days? Well, if not from the early days in terms yeah. of, of going back, but I've had some pretty uh, wonderful uh, teachers, coaches, mentors along the way. Uh, most recently, uh, of course, I've been privileged. One of the most wonderful things about being CEO of a, of a company that's growing like Hexel is that I have a phenomenal board of directors. And uh, this board of directors has have really become uh, friends, mentors, uh, on top of being business partners. And so uh, people like uh, Dr. Michael Munzar, our chairman, Vince Chiara, uh, another one of our board members that has been instrumental in, uh, in, in helping build Hexo, have really helped, uh, helped me to grow, I think, as an executive. And I continue to turn to their counsel. Uh, Are there some basis. generational differences there? Are they like 10, 15 years older or about the same age or? Uh, well, there's yeah, I'm 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 still uh, fairly young, I guess, in the yeah. role. So I'm 37 years old. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, I wouldn't say the general uh, difference matters. But yes, uh, my 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 board of directors are in their uh, 50s and 60s. Others have the experience. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. right. Were you a good student in school? I, I was I was a fairly good student in school, and, and I never put in. Uh, I probably didn't put in an, enough effort on the front end, but uh, usually got the pretty good marks. Uh, and I would only rediscover really uh, proper studying and school during my MBA, uh, which I enjoyed. What about other outside activities? You were involved in sports, music, you know, debate. Were there other things that you enjoyed growing up? Uh, I grew up. Uh, I, I I was a, a fairly. Uh, fairly active athlete. Uh, I played football, American football oh, right. uh, for, uh, for years. Uh, and then, uh, after that, uh, got into, uh, to powerlifting and, uh, was a, a kickboxer for, uh, oh, for many cool. years. That's something I still take up today. Yeah. Did, did you compete as a kickboxer? 
I've never competed. No, yeah. I, we. Uh, I actually, I was in the best shape of my life a few years ago, right before I started Hexo. Actually, and then, I, and then, <laughs> then it got really difficult. We won't go down that and, rabbit hole. <laughs> and and was uh, was about uh, was about to compete, and then and then the company started, and uh, other priorities took over. Well, you obviously are an entrepreneur, and, and we'll get into the Hexo story in a few minutes. But what about early on? Were there things that you did as an entrepreneur as a kid growing up? You know, uh, the ubiquitous paper route or other things that you might have been involved with as a kid. Well, it wasn't so much a paper route. Uh, so I started, I got into 3D simulation when I was oh. about 15 years old. Wow. And at 16, I was got disinterested in high school quite a bit. And I was very uh, lucky. I had a, I had a, a partner uh, in of one of my teachers, a guy called mm. Paul Amaro, who worked at the National Research Council, saw my interest in 3D and brought me over. So I started doing some contracts for the National Research Council. That at 15. led- 15? Uh, well, I, yeah, I, wow. I was just- when I started, I was late, late in my late in my yeah. teens, and then yeah. then turned sixteen. I started my own company called 3D One, and wow. at that time, I was one of three guys in the country that could do the sort of work that was required, and that led to uh, doing work for the Canadian Space Agency. Oh, uh, cool. And uh, so we were doing some simulations on satellite shakers, and uh, we did some work for the David Florida Laboratory, and it was a, a really wonderful experience. Wow. So kind of more of a design uh, capabilities then? Is that what you were involved with? or Yeah, it was, was design, your... 3D modeling, yeah. and simulation uh, was, wow. the, uh, was the business. And so, of course, cool. I, I took it. I was quite uh, proud and happy, and I thought I was doing, uh, I was doing very well. I, unfortunately, I didn't have the experience at the time to build a team around me. Mm. And that's something that would stick with me years later when I started yeah. at Hexo, because that's the very first thing I did. Right, right. And you got paid for it, too, on top of that. <laughs> well, huh? yeah, that, po and possibly, possibly too much for a sixteen-year-old. <laughs> and uh, you went on to college, and uh, obviously, that's your MBA with the University of Ottawa, uh, and you studied economics. Did you kind of have a feeling then that you would go into business? Is that why you chose that field? I think I've always, well, I chose, my very first field was actually a Bachelor of Arts and I chose okay. it because it was the shortest degree. I was, I was, I wanted the piece of paper. I really yeah. did, was not interested in the schooling. And uh, so I, I found a three-year degree at the University of Ottawa, which is a Bachelor of Arts. And I did it in both languages, in English and French concurrently. And that oh. allowed me to complete it in 17 months. That's so, cool. so I got through that very quickly, and it was very opportunistic. Uh, later on, when I would come back to my MBA and uh, most of my master's in quantitative finance, that one I never finished. Uh, again, company got in the way. But um, those, I would take my time. So I did my bachelor's yeah. degree in 17 yeah. months. It took me 10 years to get my MBA. <laughs> and you were doing 3D1 at the same time as you got your bachelor's, right? Uh, yeah, well, 3D1 was just on the tail end. So I finished that and then went left 3D1 to do my bachelor's, realizing that 3D1 was not scaling. I needed more experience. And another thing I credit my parents with, uh, and, and my father especially, uh, really pushing me hard to go back to school, get a formal education. Yeah. And uh, yeah. of course, that that would lead to uh, my my pre re-entrepreneurship career, if you will, uh, working for uh, working in the banks at Export Development Canada and Trade Finance, and then at Business Development Bank in uh, in commercial lending. Was was Export Development, was that kind of the first professional job um, that you took on, or was there other things that you did in working in a large organization? EDC was the first, uh, yeah. first real job, if you want to call it yeah. that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Did you, did you get leadership responsibilities early on, Sebastian? 
Uh, yeah, I built in. So the, the job, it was not a, a leadership role right away, but I, mm-hmm. I rapidly grew into it. So I joined a team of six people mm-hmm. when I was at EDC, uh, first doing, uh, basically EDC had all their all their varied products. And then they had a division called small business, which was for companies 5 million in revenue and under. So that's mm-hmm. where I joined. And I mm-hmm. ra- rapidly realized that they EDC had a slew of products available for larger companies, but none of those products were available for smaller companies. It was mm-hmm. basically just accounts receivable insurance. Yeah. So mm-hmm. what what I did is I productized all the senior level products that were very complicated and I productized them for small business. And we grew that small team from six people to well over 30 in about a year and a half. And we grew the book of business uh, from uh, something like $40 million to $300 million over 24 months. Uh, yeah. So, and, and that led to then uh, some, uh, some more leadership, uh, although informal at the time, uh, until I got poached by BDC. So the EDC is 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 that the export develop is is it a government organization is it quasi public tell us a little bit about how they're structured yeah so EDC is a is a, is a wonderful organization actually it's a it's a crown corporation owned mm. by the federal government of Canada okay. and its mandate is to uh, increase Canadian exports and international right. trade yeah yeah so what attracted you to go there early on. I got attracted there because it was uh, it was based on uh, business growth. It was uh, I, I looked at it as a learning ground. It had uh, it was entrepreneurial in the sense that uh, it was run for profit, so it had the uh, stability of government with uh, with an entrepreneurial flair. So uh, that, that was interesting, and most importantly, I got to work with entrepreneurs. So yeah. although my work itself wasn't the entrepreneurial, every day I got to interface with presidents and CEOs of small companies, and that right. built was. A wonderful experience. Yeah, awesome. And you moved into people management in that job, right? Did you, you were you managing people at the end of the time of you departing there? No, not officially. No, so no, in my at EDC and BDC, I never, uh, I never actually directly managed uh, folks. Although uh, informal team lead at EDC uh, with uh, with about seventeen people. Yeah, right, right. And then the Business Development Bank of of Canada. That was the is that BBC? Is that what you refer to? That's right. That's okay. Right. So, so is that also kind of a quasi-government organization? Tell us a little bit about that. Correct. So, for-profit organization owned okay. by the federal government, and that right. one with a mandate to bridge the financing gap for small businesses uh, oh. while they grow uh, before they're strong enough to stand on their own and go to a normal commercial credit. Uh, right. But uh, after they're uh, after they're strong enough, so not angel capital, not commercial credit, but in between. Right, right. So what was the attraction to do that? Just get a little heavier into the finance area and learn about that? Or did you kind of have an affinity for numbers and, you know, what it took to be successful, obviously, for entrepreneurs to also be successful with numbers, right? I mean, that's a very important part of it. Yeah, absolutely. So getting into uh, getting into BDC was a, a great opportunity to mm. work with larger companies. So uh, my mandate there was uh, I didn't deal with companies five million in revenue and under. It was right. five million and over. Uh, right. And in that in that capacity, uh, so then I, I interact with companies that that, that could do 100, 150 million in revenue. Again, directly with presidents and CEOs, and we had a whole mm. consulting arm on which I helped there. Uh, so to go in and uh, do consulting on the businesses, so, so similar as uh, as you would do on MBA business cases but on real world examples. So there I worked in the manufacturing sector with uh, over the years with over 300 different CEOs and presidents uh, learning their business, uh, hopefully improving their business and, and providing credit. 
And then I believe you moved into a CFO position with a, a, a company. Was that one of the ones that you advised with or consulted with? Well, How that's one of the, that's one of the ones that I guess I impressed more than others. And uh, <laughs> the the uh, the CEO of that company, uh, Trevor Kingsbury at uh, Wholesale Auto Parts uh, Warehouses, uh, saw what uh, saw what I was doing. He said one day, Sebastian, I need to grow the business, uh, and uh, in fact, I want to I want to sell it. Uh, so why don't you why don't you come work with me? Right. And I said, okay, well that's interesting. So uh, we uh, I said uh, absolutely, let's let's go take a look at this. And uh, so I went in, and over the the following twelve months, we grew the business from five to ten million in revenue, wow. uh, and uh, we put that's in a whole months, bunch not of years. Yeah, twelve months, twelve months. So we <laughs> doubled the business. Impressive. And uh, this uh, the, the the president of the company was a typical entrepreneur, working hundred hour weeks, uh, right. doing too much himself. And so I refocused him on the things he was phenomenal at, which was R and D, IP development, and sales. And I took everything else away from his plate. Mm. And in that sense, we were able to put in a low, whole bunch of process, having learned the original lessons of my life. And mm. uh, on building team, we built up the team, took all that off his plate, and then we just watched him do his magic and uh, blow up the sales. And uh, what was really interesting and the, the, the thing that there was a, a, a bad outcome for me personally and, and really overall a, a great outcome for me personally at the back of that journey. So when we finished, he had we had brought his hours down from 100 hours a week to 20 hours. We had doubled the revenue of his business and he was happier than ever. So a year later after my, my mandate, remember, this was to go in and sell the company. Uh, he said, well, I don't want to sell. I go, well, oh. that's problematic because that's how I get paid. That's right. Yeah. That's <laughs> so, uh, but it, it wasn't a big deal. We're still great friends. Yeah. Uh, and I, we actually go, uh, we go snowmobiling every once in a while together and, and, <laughs> and talk about the, the good old times. His business is even more successful now uh, that, that, that I'm gone. And, and uh, he's, uh, he's turned into a bit of a mentor on the sales side. So um, the, uh, the good part of that has been seeing the growth right. and the ability of an entrepreneur to focus on what they're good at uh, and build a team around them. Yeah. Awesome. Now, was it in that role that you first started managing people directly? Oh, officially, yeah, I guess. Yeah, officially, uh, officially yeah, yes, yeah. yes. And what were some of the challenges you had during that? I mean, you work very closely, obviously, with a lot of these CEOs and presidents, and you had team people around you. But, you know, when you kind of move into that management role, did you find some issues that uh, you encountered at that time? Well, the uh, one, one of the larger issues in that particular role was just, I mean, I was coming into a team that had, uh, they had all been doing their jobs for 15 years or, or more. Uh, they had a tremendous amount of uh, experience, uh, but there was also a lot of ingrained how to do things. Mm. So changing that uh, without yeah. upsetting people, uh, that, that, was a, that was certainly a major challenge. Mm. But you were successful and were able to get them on track. And then did you find your replacement before you moved on? Or how did you kind of transition out of that business after a year plus? Well, no. So, so what I did is I, I believe when you're at the kind of the sea level, of the, your, your goal should be to build an organization that goes on without you. You can get mm -hmm. hit by a bus the next day. If you've put in the right process and the right team around you, um, you unless you need to keep building that business, then you, you should essentially be superfluous. Mm -hmm. So uh, no, when, when, I, uh, when I left, uh, that simply meant the company uh, got, uh, got a little bit more profitable and uh, then uh, it, it just kept doing its thing. Yeah. Awesome. So Hexo is next. Tell us a little bit about the origins of, you know, getting that started. We're back in what, about uh, 2012, 2013? Yeah, now we're in 2013. It was uh, July and uh, actually Canada Day, and I was sitting on yeah. a, sitting around a campfire with a good friend of mine. And uh, I've uh, the, this good friend of mine who now works for me. Uh, he's uh, mm. he's our director of uh, of compliance and regulatory, uh, Max Sear. Max was working for 
uh, Health Canada. And he right. tells me around that campfire that day, uh, Sebastian, they're about to legalize medical marijuana. Mm. And uh, for the last couple of years, there was a bit of a gap there, Brian, we didn't touch. But for, I had been uh, off of uh, wholesale auto parts for a few years, uh, right. just investing in real estate, doing cash flow real estate investing. I didn't need to go back to work because uh, I, I had been successful enough uh, previous to that, when I say work to a traditional job, right, and I was looking right. for my next business. So I, yeah. I, I took years to do so, uh, for which I, I do give a lot of thanks to my wife. She was phenomenally patient. Uh, Aruna was great with me and supportive during those years. It gave me all the time I needed to find the right idea. Mm. And uh, sitting with Max around that campfire that day, I knew right away that was the right idea. The light bulb went off. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I said, here was a business where we would have a government mo- a government erected moat around the business uh, for for uh, competitive purposes, right? We'd have this license that would basically protect our business while we built it. I knew the marijuana business from my youth. uh, And although I was was quite late before the first time I tried the product, I think I was about 24, but growing up in my teens, all my friends consumed marijuana all the time. So I knew the demand was huge and it was a huge, uh, and it was a cash business. Was was it a uh, criminal uh, offense there? I mean, were the laws different in Canada than down in the States during the time you were growing up or? Yeah, until uh, until legalization in, in, that would come in late 2013. Yeah. Uh, it was it was absolutely illegal. There was a uh, carve out uh, under a medical program for a grow at home, but it was very cumbersome. You had to go get mm-hmm. your license. There was about 5,000 Canadians at the time that had those personal grow licenses for personal mm-hmm. use. That mm-hmm. would later feed into gray market for years to come, yeah. uh, and the, the the government would all try to roll that back. But that was a big part of creating a national framework for legalization with licensed producers was to be able to to mature that out of the gray market into what we have now in Canada today, which is a fully blown legal system with both yeah. adult use and medical that uh, grows, consumes, and also exports. Who, who was behind the original kind of, um, you know, impetus of, of, of legalizing medical marijuana? Was it, was it a government agency? Did it come more from, you know, public, um, you know, protesting or the folks that obviously have, you know, pain management issues? What, what, what was kind of the, or was it a combination of everything really that kind of came together back in 13? Well, I think it was a confluence of a lot of things, but I I think the key, if you're going to point to one thing, uh, the Supreme Court of Canada made a ruling uh, specifically. So we talked about those personal grow licenses uh, on the medical side pre uh, what what was the uh, the MMPR, which was the the piece of legislation that would come into into place uh, and be replaced eventually by the Cannabis Act, under which we operate today. Right. But w- ahead of that MMPR program was this MMAR program, the Medical Marijuana Access Regulations, mm-hmm. and that program basically covered. Uh, allowed you to grow at home if you had a prescription from your doctor for your own use. And there was a Supreme Court challenge around the accessibility of marijuana because it did so much good for people and people were being forced to take other prescription medicines that didn't help their health. Uh, And and, probably uh, were more addictive as well. Absolutely. It was more addictive, more dangerous. It was more expensive. And so uh, that got challenged at the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court essentially ordered the federal government to come up with a solution to Mm. increase access to medical marijuana. And the conservative uh, government of Canada at the time uh, came up with what would be the MMPR, so the precursor to to the Cannabis Act. Yeah, fantastic. So you had this conversation around the campfire. And what came next? 
Well, I, I didn't, I didn't sleep for, for 48 hours. And, and so I, and I didn't, I didn't have a, I didn't Out have a laptop. With me. Right? I got the financial projections right away uh, and I was doing them. Uh, so imagine Excel on paper on a kitchen yeah. table in an old cottage. Uh, cottage is probably too generous. It's more of a camp. And the next, uh, the next day my, my wife joins me and I, I just run, I hadn't slept all night and I, I just <laughs> run out of the porch and I, I say, we're going to grow weed and I, with a big smile on my face. She look at me and he, <laughs> Looked at you like, are you crazy or are you on long. the drugs you want to grow? No. And so uh, we, uh, but uh, you know what? Then I explained the business plan and she thought it was a great idea and always supportive. Um, and uh, that was, uh, that was the, the, the early journey. Um, so now, did you go out and seek venture capital? Did you use your own capital? I know you have a co-founder or two. Well, the very the very first step, yeah. So we're we're two founders, uh, myself and Adam Mirren, uh, yep. and uh, Adam would come in the picture two weeks later. So uh, okay. so so Adam is my brother in law. So he oh, married okay. Mina, who is Aruna's sister. Aruna is right. my wife, mm-hmm. and uh, that's how Adam and I know each other. And Adam yeah. was a successful entrepreneur. He's been uh, he founded um, iPolitics, which was uh, the largest online newspaper in Canada for many oh. years. Uh, so so he had a a lot of uh, great baggage behind him, uh, sales and marketing expertise. So coming at this actually. Actually, my first concern wasn't capital. My first concern was building the team. And so the very first thing I said, okay, I'm pretty good on finance and operations, uh, but I needed a really good marketer. Uh, I needed uh, the, uh, I also needed to round out the the people skills. Uh, Adam's a phenomenal people person. Mm. Um, And so I went to him uh, and shared the idea and said, I have an idea. I'd like you to go in business with me. Did he so, look at you uh, cross-eyed first? <laughs> you know, you know what that uh, that <laughs> mo- that morning we were, we were actually at a party, at a friend's party. We had two friends getting married. We were out out on uh, in downtown Ottawa in a high-rise on a patio, and uh, I uh, I turned over and told him the idea. And yeah, at first he kind of shook his head and it was a straight no. But then he <laughs> literally, he was thinking, the, what have you been smoking? Uh, yeah, <laughs> something like that. And uh, but then the more I kept, uh, you know, yeah. I've, I've never stopped talking when people say no. Uh, so and then uh, I just <laughs> the more strategy. The more I talked, the more I talked, the the, the you know the more interested he was. Uh, and I recall at the time I told Adam, I think this could be like a twenty million dollar family business. Wow. Uh, which is funny because a few years later, here we are at a billion dollar uh, market cap, right? And uh, and in fact, so it was Adam's idea recently to uh, to write a book. Uh, so we wrote a book about the journey yeah. uh, called Billion Dollar billion Startup. Dollar startup. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And we just published in January. It's a national bestseller here in Canada. Exactly. And you can read all about that meeting and many more actually uh, between the pages. I love it. And Julie Bune, is that how you pronounce her last name? Is that... Um... That's right. Uh, so Julie, cool. Julie got to witness it firsthand, which was pretty cool. And she's a phenomenal writer, very easy reading style. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that. I, I mean, first of all, I, I, I never would have had the the time or uh, or, or capacity to write it. Uh, so she, she did a way better job than I ever could have. And uh, she saw it firsthand. She was our publicist at Hexo uh-huh. for about three years in the early years. Uh-huh. And so uh, she really got to. It was kind of like embedded journalism, right? And uh, so uh, she, uh, she then had the uh, Adam approach her to write the book and uh, she thought it was a phenomenal idea and uh, here we are awesome can't can't wait to read it i've already ordered it since our last call so uh, i'll look forward to a follow-up on this but let's just rewind a little bit tell us about those early days so you have this idea you've got your brother-in-law involved you've obviously got a lot of excitement around it was it your own money again did you seek outside capital how did you kind of get things started in those early days yeah particularly given that it wasn't yet quite legal Right? No, I mean, so not legal at the, the time. Yeah, yeah, not legal at the time. Right. Meg, 
presumed to become medically legal only. Right. Right. right? Uh, No. And excitement at the time, I would say, actually, that's probably the wrong characterization. We were excited. (laughs) Nobody else was. (laughs) People look at you like, yeah, right. I could Um, rant. I couldn't get a meeting with anyone. Anyone said we're mm. marijuana? No, not interested. And so at the time, we Adam had the great idea. He's like, "Listen, we gotta, we gotta make sure we gotta at least be able to get these meetings." So we came. The first name we had was terrible. The second was better, but not much better. And then we finally landed on what I think is a great name, which is Hexo. But the first name was Canadian Medical Services because it, everyone was so afraid of marijuana that we had to come up with the blandest, most innocuous thing right. we could come up with. Right. Right. And so we started the business under Canadian Medical Services. Mm. Uh, and then the first thing, of course, was capital. So at the time, I mean, we, we had a little bit of capital on our own, but certainly not a lot. So I, uh, But it, it was all started on my line of credit. I maxed out a $35,000 line of credit. Uh, that was the seed capital, uh, and everything was run off my personal uh, Visa card. Um, and uh, you know, although comfortable, we certainly were not wealthy, right? We were we were middle class and and well off, so it was it was a stretch for us. Now, obviously, we knew that the business plan would not survive on thirty five thousand dollars, and this is where. Um, I uh, decided to uh, go out and with Adam, and we basically uh, leaned on every single person that was close to us to help put <laughs> the first round of seed capital together. Anything you can give, guys. <laughs> we were uh, we we were both. Uh, you know, we were both of, of relatively modest means, and and we certainly didn't know any wealthy people. So when you think of angel investors, when you you know a person here or there that had you know small small hundreds of thousands of dollars, but nobody that were uh, multimillionaires. Right, so right. so we literally ro- raised our first uh, million dollars, and we would raise one point one million dollars. It was a first round of financing, closed December twenty thirteen. So about about five months after we started the uh-huh. business. That was and so we went five five ten thousand twenty five thousand dollar investors I imagine something like that. It, or, it or was it was a whole bunch of ten thousand dollar. A bunch of ten thousand. Yeah, yeah, our smallest check uh-huh. we took was five. There was one friend that said, "Hey, I really want to come in, but I don't have ten grand." We said, "Listen, we'll, we'll take what you got." <laughs> so he gave us he gave us five grand. Uh, that, that was the smallest, and uh, and although we we did uh, throughout that journey, those first couple of months, that's where I would come to meet uh, who would become our chairman, Doctor Michael okay. Menzar. Right. and so I met Michael. And, and he'd been uh, in the field, correct, or or what was his background? So yeah, so he was a he, he was from a pharma background. So he okay. he became a GP later because I think he got fed up with all the politics around pharma. Right. Uh, but he uh, he was actually involved at uh, Nymox Pharmaceuticals mm. um, and uh, Osta Biotechnology as well, uh, in which he he had some interesting lessons there. Um, so uh, he coming out and and uh, you know knew the product as well, uh, knew it had helped patients tremendously. And so, uh, you know, we, we first got introduced through one of our growers. So Adam and I, had, well, it was Adam that, that found this guy uh, right. who was a, an, a grower uh, that had a lot of experience. And he said, hey, you guys should talk to this, this doctor from Montreal. Mm. So a couple of weeks later, uh, Michael and his business partner uh, drive out. Uh, I was on my own at the time. Adam was on a trip. Uh, and uh, I meet them. And of course, I, I can't be, I live in this really terrible two bedroom townhouse downtown, right? Like my, my wife and I, my wife and I were frugal. We, we bought the, the cheapest house in center town we could find. We right. wanted to be central. Uh, so, so I, was like, I can't meet him here, right? He's going to just going to, that's not going to work. So what, what I would do, and we laugh about it today. So we, we just, we, we rented a room in a, there, there was a, a, a small local coffee, a roastery, and we rented right. a room there. We thought that'd be pretty right. cool. And uh, to this day, uh, you, you know, Michael laughs at me. He said, yeah, I said, I came in that. He didn't have two pennies to scratch together i think i had to buy the coffee (laughs) 
<laughs> I love it. And today, how many employees and publicly well, my, traded? Gosh, well, yeah. So from that, those early run. days, and, and Michael would eventually, he was our first independent investor. So the first 1.1 million bucks, he put about a yeah. quarter million bucks in. Uh, and uh, today, nice. yeah, we're sitting at about 750 employees, uh, market cap of a billion dollars. Yeah. Uh, there are over 500,000 yeah. individual shareholders, if you can believe it. So publicly listed on the New York Stock Exchange and also the Toronto Stock Exchange. Yeah. Yeah. And full disclosure, I am one since our last call. So for Oh, all wonderful. Well, we're, we're only talking about public stuff. So don't worry. You can still trade. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> and uh, wow. Interesting. And, and how many total employees now? 750. Right. And, you're, and the, your operations are across Canada and also into the U.S., right? You've got a relationship in Colorado, as I understand it. That's right. Yeah. So we uh, during our journey, uh, about um, about five years in from the start, so I guess it would have been about 2018, uh, we did a deal with Molson Coors mm. to uh, do cannabis-based beverages. Mm. And that deal resulted in the formation of a, tr- of a joint venture called Trust. Uh, joint venture, which uh, Hexo owns 42.5% of. Mm. And that uh, joint venture had its own CEO who stood up as its own beverage company that would focus on cannabis beverage. Mm. That company has recently launched as part of Trust USA. We've just launched our uh, Verivel brand, which is a CBD sparkling water line in Colorado. And it's going, uh, they launched in January. It's going very well. We're on the end caps of uh, major grocery stores in Colorado. So uh, people are uh, people are talking about it. And I'm looking forward to seeing the, the actual sales numbers uh, over the following quarters. Tell us a little bit about the transition from the medical only to the recreational. Now, when did that take place in Canada and how did that impact your business? Uh, so that, that was a huge sea change. So when yeah. I came in, uh, when we first started, you have to understand the licensing process was nothing easy. So, uh, you know, we raised that first million dollars and that got us to the next round, which would be about three and a half. But at that time, it was very, very difficult to raise capital. Mm. Uh, and the we didn't have a full-blown license so right. what we ended up having to do uh, we had applied for our own license but that license would uh, would eventually fail that that first uh, that license application uh, they, mm. the city didn't like the zoning and they had to change of heart uh, so what we had to do is we had to pivot and at the time uh, adam and i found uh, another licensee that was in gatineau where we are today in Masson, mm. uh, and we would meet who would become the third partner a farmer called louis gagnon and louis did uh, was a, was a master horticulturalist he had a phenomenal flower business um, and he had applied for these MMPR licenses. And he had actually secured a phase one cultivation license. Mm. So Hexo would buy uh, that farm, uh, would come to buy that farm, own that phase one license. But then we had to graduate it into a full-blown license. So to understand why that's important, the phase one license was the right to own the plants, but you couldn't do anything with them. You you had to basically <laughs> prove to the government that you could hold these plants, not have them stolen or lost, and, and basically graduate to something that allowed you to sell those licenses. Uh-huh. So that was about a two-year process, and yeah. uh, during that time, during that time, it was very, very difficult. I mean, we we were near bankruptcy uh, quite a few times. Mm. Uh, we had to kind of go back and retap lines of credit, put back personal capital at risk, all without taking salaries. I might say, like my, my first couple of years at Hexo was salary free, and then yeah. uh, you know I, I think I pulled uh, I pulled maybe a total of a hundred thousand dollars in the first four years. Mm. Um, so uh, so all that uh, a huge challenge but then from the, the and and also putting us at behind our competitors so i'm going to get right. to your recre i know it's a long-winded answer it's getting right. back to that question a recreational medical switch why was it important uh, is that all that challenge we were the 17th licensed producer in canada at the time 
Mm-hmm. We were two years behind some of our main competitors, household names that you, that you you would know of today that they're publicly listed and now they compete against us, right? They're, we're, right. T- today, Hex was a top three cannabis company in Canada, by the way. We have top three mm-hmm. market share. Um, so uh, when what happened is that the legalization of adult use gave Hexo a window to completely mm-hmm. refocus its strategy. And so when- and when was that? What, what year was this, like 15, 16 or- uh, yeah, I believe it was 15 when they yeah. announced and went live and uh, right. when that would go live a few years later, about two years right. later. Um, so when, when that came out, uh, it was um, – it really gave us an opportunity to refocus. We were struggling to gather patients. We were, uh, you know, we had a fairly small team at the time, at mm. maybe sixty people. Mm. And then this this story came out, and we said, okay, well, we got to go after the, the adult use market. I mean, medical yeah. is already crowded. There's uh, already moats around clinic relationships and this sort of thing that we were penetrating, but it was taking a lot of time. So we decided to put all our efforts into expanded capability. Uh, and to uh, supplying the what would be the government of Quebec's uh, play SQDC. SQDC, the retailer owned by the government of Quebec. Uh, and that would give us a platform to become a national player. Got it. Cool. Cool. And then literally just took off after that. And when did you go public? What was the year that you went to the markets? We first uh, went public, um, I believe that was in 2015 on the Toronto Venture Exchange, right. so the junior right. exchange. And we would uplist a few years later, and a few years after that, we would list on the New York Stock Exchange. So so the first time you went out, were you still just in medical only, or it was recreational already in place? It, it was medical only. Medical only. Okay. So that came later. Fantastic. Well, tremendous ride. And, and uh, everyone out there, read the book, A Billion Dollar Startup. Get a chance to get that. I'm sure we can find it on Amazon or anywhere else. But just kind of back to you and your evolution. T- tell me a little bit about how your leadership style evolved over time. I mean, you know, you obviously worked very closely with a lot of president CEOs. You worked in these quasi-government organizations. You obviously helped a lot of folks who were successful. You did the wholesale auto parks business. I mean, you really were not in consumer products at all. Right. I mean, you might have had a couple of clients and so forth. And, you know, that's a very different business, first of the medical side and then recreational. And how did that kind of play out in terms of as you grew into the role of CEO? And and, and what did you find, you know, kind of some of the things that you needed to change from a leadership standpoint? Well, you, you definitely have to become uh, there's a there's a huge shift in any business when you go from entrepreneurial to large business right. uh, and moving uh, from the hands on do everything to process driven team of experts, professionals running the show. Uh, And so from that sense, I'm uh, I'm phenomenally uh, lucky or blessed. We've built a a world-class team at Hexo. And so moving into CPG, uh, I'm surrounded by CPG executives. So when I look at the- Brought a lot of good people in. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's key. Um, And at the core of it is also, I believe in bringing in good people and then giving them a lot of leash uh, to, uh, my job is really to focus the story, say no to what you know what are we not going to do so right. for example when we went adult use we said we're going to freeze our medical business and we're going to uh solely focus on growing the adult use or the mm. recreational oh, business. oh really so so you literally got out of the medical side well we did we, we kept we still have medical patients today because we we never wanted to get out we didn't think right. that was right uh, because these people need their medicine right and, sure. and it changes their lives uh so and we have about ten thousand patients today at hexo um yeah. so still a, still a fair amount and and we do uh, funnily enough now we've entered the medical business in places like israel uh, through oh. export um right. Right. but uh but the core of the business is really about uh, being a adult use uh business here in right. canada uh, and and the us so 
So really, the leadership style is really one of once you uh, once you set your strategy, you then have to set a structure uh, that's lean and cohesive with that, and then you have right. to fill it with people that have seen the movie before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then you have to hold them accountable. Uh, you yeah. have to hold them accountable to very high standards and to deliver on that mission, uh, and uh, and then help them when they fail. And uh, if the business outgrows them, uh, unfortunately, right, you have to make those choices as well. Uh, but uh, it, overall, I've been very blessed. Yeah, awesome. Uh, you know, you mentioned you went through a couple of different names. Tell us how you came to Hexo. What does that mean? Does it have anything behind it? And uh, you know, kind of how that became, you know, the the marker, so to speak, for your CPG business. So the, fur, the the company officially launched under the name Hydropothecary. Hydropothecary was okay. the original name of the company, which was for a cross between hydroponics and apothecary. So right. trying to harken back to the old school customer service, in-person shopping, and the technology of uh, hydroponics, indoor grow. Uh, so problematic for a couple of reasons. One, it was an absolute mouthful. Couldn't spell it <laughs> to save our lives. And in, in retrospect, mm. certainly a mistake. But um, as, as we grew and we made that shift from medical to adult use, uh, the apothecary piece didn't make much sense yeah, anymore. Right. We chose a, a low-cost greenhouse uh, cultivation to start. Uh, so, and although we used hydroponics, it certainly wasn't hydroponics focused. Uh, and I, I don't think people put two and two together in either case. So, uh, we we needed something simple, catchy. We wanted something that would line up uh, against the ticker. Uh, we wanted to preserve a little bit of the history with the H from mm. hydropothecary. Yeah. Um, and uh, and, and uh, all those things would culminate into us finding um, there there was a, a, a French language play uh, called EXO, uh, which Ooh. was uh, w- without the H, that, that was a play on on really good weed, essentially. Right. So uh, okay. so that kind of fit. It was a two-syllable. We could get the ticker. We could get the website. It had the nice play, that history. And so EXO was born. And that was there Adam's grandchild. There you go. Company culture is a big part of, uh, you know, recruiting and obviously bringing people in. We spoke about that a couple of weeks ago when we first talked, you know, and, and when you create a new company, you really do start from, you know, a single piece of, of, of clay. How, how would you describe Hexo's company culture and, and what do you personally do to keep that alive? The most of it is, so there's four core values at Hexo, uh, mm-hmm. execution, collaboration, innovation and integrity. Mm. And I would say that the most important of all of those values and the one that has really defined Hexo has been execution. Mm. We have, uh, Hexo has very much an approach of if you face a brick wall, you find a way around it, over it, dig under it, or blast through it. Um, <laughs> right. And and that is a theme that has come back over and over and over mm. again. Uh, and uh, in fact, as we've matured as an organization, uh, that's actually a part of the culture that we've had to hone back and really balance with our other values. Values, such yeah. as collaboration, right? because one of the one of the downfalls of always wanting to run through brick walls is sometimes you can have a tendency of running through your teammates, which is counterproductive. That doesn't right. work, yeah. uh, and that really came from my 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 days at you know captain of the offensive line when yeah. I was playing football. Right. Uh, right. The, the great thing about football, you got one of the thirteen people on that line that don't do what they're supposed to do, and the play doesn't work. You yeah. need every yeah. single person to do their job, and business isn't any different. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Well, we've we've just about ran out of time, but I do have a couple of last questions I want to go over with you, Sebastian. And and talking about hiring people, and you know, you obviously are growing. I'm sure there's been a little bit of COVIDian, you know, furloughs and so forth. But you know, hopefully, as we're coming out of that, what do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in and hire at Hexa? 
So the the fit and culture is is always one. I mean, so yeah. the, the, there's a couple of must-haves, right? So the technical expertise and experience, right. seeing the yeah. movie before, those, those are must-haves, and and right. that's actually the easier thing to find. Uh, I think the most important thing when you're assessing uh, an individual to join the team uh, is really that um, is really that 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 quality that 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 winner's attitude. The uh, the want and the need to win. Uh, uh, get through that wall. Get through right. that wall. And, <laughs> Over uh, it, under it, around it, whatever it takes. Or through, or through. Or through uh, and, it. Yeah, and having right. done it, right? Having done it many right. times. Right. Um, so so assessing that quality, mm. uh, which is which is a very hard thing to do. Um, and it compared, of course, with all the, all the technical expertise. Um, and then being able to uh, focus that person into their, uh, into their swim lane. So right. having them really be able to go deep rather than wide, uh, and then uh, having us all come up for air uh, once a week as a cohesive team uh, to all improve together. Lastly, Sebastian, you know, we have got a lot of younger listeners to the show and particularly people that are, you know, maybe in their 20s and 30s taking a look at their career. What kind of career and life advice would you give to someone who has their eyes on their own corner office or, for example, like you, wants to be an entrepreneur and be successful? The only advice uh, I would uh, I would give is advice I've received a very long time ago, and I might modulate it a little bit. And it's advice I got from my father when I was uh, mm-hmm. I was fed up from school and I didn't want to go back. Um, <laughs> so my advice to all young people are is whether you like it or not. I hated school in the early years; I absolutely despised it. But you know what? Uh, and and I would end, and I would I would love it. Um, go go do a formal education, go get your piece of paper. Cause mm. if you don't have a piece of paper, it's going to be very difficult starting from nothing uh, to, to impress and get the base experience that you need. So, and it's, it's a great fallback plan. Once you have a fallback plan, the uh, next and perhaps the more important piece of advice, don't let anybody tell you no. Uh, because uh, they all will. They'll all tell you your ideas. As crazy as they may look at you with your ideas, right? They'll tell you it's impossible. (laughs) They'll tell you it's a bad idea. They'll talk behind your back and uh, it does not matter. You must continue. The most important thing in the success of a business is unrelenting willpower. Well, Sebastian St. Louis, founder and CEO of Hexo, thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thanks for having me, Brent. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.